0: Welcome to the Antioch Network Podcast, where we share stories of God at work in our world. My name is Daniel Malikowski, the North American Director of Antioch Network, and your host for today's episode. In this podcast, we'll hear from the founders of Antioch Network, George and Hannah Miley, as they speak to the ministry's roots and foundations. As they do, they will share on their unique experience through the global mission movement, Operation Mobilization. And how the challenges they navigated together paved the way for the beliefs and values that would form and shape Antioch Network. As we hear the Mileys share, we will hear the missional heart of God to bring the gospel of his reconciling love to all peoples. Well, I'm Daniel Malakowski. I am the North American director of Antioch Network, and I am really grateful to be joined today by George and Hannah Miley, the founders of Antioch Network, as we do this podcast and tell the story of the roots of Antioch Network. Now, we as an organization have been um, functioning since 1987 and legally incorporated since 1989 But the journey that gave birth to Antioch Network actually began well before that time. And today we're going to be specifically talking to the Miley's about their journey and experience through an organization called Operation Mobilization. Now, some listening may be familiar with OM, um, as it's designated, and others may not. But OM was one of the emerging mission movements that came out of the late 50s and the early 60s that continues to exist today with well over 5,000 workers sent across the world serving the nations for the purpose of the gospel. And it began uh, as a ministry by the name of a man named George Verwer, but if you listen to him tell the story, he'll attribute its birth to his high school teacher, Mrs. Clapp, who he says prayed it into existence. So with early trips to Mexico in the 50s with his friends, it eventually began to grow into a movement of which the Miley's were able to join in the early 60s. And so, George and Hannah, I'm excited to hear from these experiences. And would you be uh, do us the honor of telling us about how you got connected with OM in the work that you got to participate in there, and actually even how you your marriage was formed <laughs> and introduced to one another through this work. And so, um, George, would you do this honor of telling us some of these stories?
1: Well, thanks, Danny. It's lovely to be able to have this conversation with you. Um, I was connected with OM after I finished my seminary studies, Hannah was connected with it when she was the teacher in Italy of English as a Second Language and came into contact with OM in 1963. We met in um, Alita's conference in Belgium in 1966 and um, from there I went out to India and Hannah soon followed, we weren't married we weren't engaged but we both had a very similar kind of ministry. We were overseeing evangelistic teams ministering to the team members and so we got to know each other through that kind of ministry, constantly coming into contact with each other, sharing the needs of the various of the various teams. Um, when we went to India, we fell in love with India. Uh, and very quickly decided we wanted to spend the rest of our lives in India. We were radical in our 20s and we were gonna just go and get lost in the villages of India. That was a very special time in the Ministry of OM because we were together with our Indian brothers and sisters laying the foundations for um, a work that would grow and is vibrant in India to this day. It was a work that transformed us in so many ways. Um, It was a work that left us with some of the very, very dear, deep, closest friends we've ever had. One of the very special things about our time in India was that we got married there. And we were married by an Indian Christian leader, Buck Singh. Um, And we were married in an Indian ceremony. Um, So Hannah, I wonder if you're not the one to kind of tell about our marriage and our wedding. What, What was that like for us, getting married in an Indian ceremony?
0: And what year was this?
2: 1971.
1: 1971. 10th of
2: December, 1971.
1: Okay. Hannah, thank you for remembering that.
2: (laughs) 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 I'm getting you ready for the next wedding anniversary present. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, George used the word radical. We were radical. We really were. But you have to understand the setting. You know... um, the early 70s. It was the time of the hippies and the Jesus movement. And um, Uh, I think Operation Mobilization was right in the flow of all that. And um, so it's good to um, think about the background to the story when you hear the story, because it's kind of different. It's a different kind of way of getting married first of all uh, the reason uh, we were married um, in Andhra Pradesh Hyderabad by Bakht Singh who was uh, an amazing indigenous leader Christian leader it was still the time when the mission project was very much western and so Uh, you know, to have this incredible godly man. And George was very um, influenced by him. He had a profound influence on George's Christian life. So to be married by him. But first of all, if you wanted to be married by Buck Singh, uh, you really had to give a very in-detail testimony that you had a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And, you know, if you didn't, I don't know if he wouldn't marry you, but I think he rather would uh, lead you to that relationship. So that was the first thing. The second thing, there were no flowers at Indian weddings uh, in his uh, assemblies because flowers were to do with the worship of the Hindu gods. And so the, the sense... In their houses of worship, which the, at the Hyderabad was the headquarters, and it was a Pandal, which is a very Indian building. It wasn't like a church building with pews or even chairs, there were no chairs, and it was open air, it was a roof on um, supports. And um, I give you uh, one story about. Um, the way I was dressed, uh, y- in modesty and in um, deference to the culture, I wore a sari. And the I needed some help in putting it together. And two of my Indian sisters helped put it together and it was a very slippy material. So they had to kind of pin it together. And I stood there in bare feet as they uh, dressed me. And so I got into these high heel shoes uh, because I'm quite a bit shorter than George. So high heel shoes were very desirable. And um, as I went to walk out to go to the panel, one of the older sisters said, oh, I'm so sorry but you can't wear shoes because in the panel everyone took off their shoes and it was like this is a holy place. We don't wear shoes. And so the custom was you left them outside and you did that in houses. You didn't just walk in with your shoes in. Your shoes on, you went barefoot. So now I had a big problem because I had been dressed in this sari with uh, bare feet uh, with uh, with the shoes actually they dressed me with the shoes on and when I took the shoes off I would I was in danger of tripping so when I went walked down I had to kind of kick it every inch of the way so I didn't trip and the, the ceremony how long did the ceremony take
1: George? two or three hours
2: yeah because there was a lot of scripture and then we also had to give our own story in the ceremony. However, I think to summarize, the greatest gift that we received was that we promised in our oath that we would pray together every day. And I just feel that it's been such a glue in our marriage. We haven't done it every day, but most times we have. And it's hard to pray together Uh, in a meaningful way, if you're mad at each other. So it usually means reconciliation going on. Anyway, that was a huge gift for our wedding.
0: So to note, that means this year will be your 50th anniversary.
1: That's right. What a a significant celebration. Little did we know. Yeah. Now,
0: I know those early days in OM, I've heard you each share stories of just the intensity and the activity of the work, having rubber thumbs and passing out tracks at train stations. Can you speak to what you guys were engaging as you were partaking in OM and then how that emerged into the ship ministries?
1: Well, the the thrust of the work of OM in India was evangelization. So we would go to the marketplace, village after village, preach in the open air. And after we preach, we would distribute Christian literature, speak to anybody who wanted to speak. But our emphasis was also training up Indian leaders. So we would have Indians with us. And very quickly, the OM teams in India were typically one or two foreigners and the rest Indians. So it was both evangelism and discipleship. And so you can see by that that discipleship was part of our ministry right from the mid 60s. Um, The work of OM internationally, and we were very much, we were part of the international work as well. We would come uh, to international conferences and that kind of thing. OM Internationally began to pray that God would give an ocean-going ship for world evangelization. And we were part of those prayers. We were praying that God would give a ship. And um, after six years of prayer, God gave a ship. And that ship was built by and owned by the government of Denmark, but um, we bought her in Copenhagen and then she went to Rotterdam for repairs. And then she began her maiden voyage uh, around Africa out to India. And on the way, I got this letter from George Verwer. He was on the ship. And he said, look, George, um, I can't lead OM generally and this ship as well. So I would like you to come and be the leader of the ship. Well, my response was, no,
0: I'm not gonna do that.
1: I'm called to India. I'm gonna spend the rest of my life in India. Um, But I did, um, Hannah and I came on the ship when George had to leave to go back to the conferences in Europe, and we had just been married, and uh, the ship was, how can I describe it, in its, early unformed state. And so there were all kinds of personnel issues and challenges as well as the program issues and challenges. But the ship Logos, um, we would go from port to port. We would spend two to three weeks in a port. We would have a book exhibition that would, have 75% of the books, secular books, 25% give or take, Christian books, to give us uh, an an, an opening into the society because if we were targeting unreached groups, unreached places particularly, uh, and so we didn't wanna go in with John 3.16 written on the side of the ship. So we went in as an international cultural group Um, and uh, eventually, I became the CEO of this work on the ship. Um, And in each port, not only did we have evangelistic outreach, but we had conferences. We would have conferences for pastors. We would have conferences for missionaries. We would have conferences for young people. And the more we had conferences for pastors and missionaries, the more we became exposed or informed by the state of the church and the state of missions in country after country after country. And on the ship Lagos, we ended up visiting you know, 100 countries and having these kind of exposure to what was going on in the church and in, in missions And it wasn't long before we were praying that God would give us a second ship because what was happening on the ship is the core leadership was growing. We were getting more captains. We were getting more chief engineers. We were getting more ministry leaders. We were developing leaders because on a ship, talk about community, the Logos was uh, 140 people on a fairly small ship. It was an ocean going ship, but fairly small. So you were meshed together and there were no secrets. I remember we received teams coming from Europe at one point and um, we would have people who had spent that two years on the ship leave and a new group that's gonna spend two years on the ship come. And one of the first things we would do with the new group is we would have morning devotions together And we would ask everybody to give their, what was their first impression when they saw the ship? I remember this one young woman, she stood up in front of everybody and she said, when I first saw the ship, we'd come all the way overland from Europe to Kuwait. When I first saw the ship, I thought, this must be what heaven is like. This ship with 140 people on it from 20 different countries, this is heaven. Well, that was 8 o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock in the morning, she got assigned to her work assignment, and her work assignment was serving food in the dining room. And within a couple of weeks, she was in my office, she wanted to go home. She said, the people on this ship are so selfish, they're the most selfish people I've ever met. <laughs> well, of course, when it comes to food, sometimes you can get the worst of people coming forward. So. Uh, Obviously, we were able to work with her on some of the things that were in her that were causing that kind of response. And so, anyway, people were growing. The work was growing. The core group was growing. And so that ship Logos um, birthed the second ship Dulos. So pretty soon now, we had two ships.
0: And what year was this that Dulos emerged as a part of the OM program. We
1: bought the DULAS in 1977. 77, okay. So now we had one ship in Latin America, one ship in Asia, and we needed a central headquarters to organize all this. And so after a long process of deciding where should the central headquarters be, we ended up establishing that headquarters of all places in Germany. So Hannah and I moved in 1980 to Mosbach in Germany to establish an international headquarters for the ships. So we had one director on the Lagos, another director on the Dulos. I was overseeing both ships, and now we were establishing an international headquarters in Germany. So that's a little bit of our early days in OM. And all of this was feeding into what was ultimately going to be expressed in Antioch Network.
0: Now, I can't imagine an early marriage on ships, ocean going with the itinerary that you guys were keeping up with these conferences and the programs was easy. How was that experience uh, for you guys in the sense of forming you individually, not just being exposed to these challenges in the world, but also within your own development. Hannah.
2: I, um, you know, there's the big picture. There is the um, national movements. There are, but then there's the um, personal inward activity. And, like George referred to um, our friend who um, was thinking she was in heaven when she arrived on the ship. And then a week later, she realized she was in hell. (laughs) So it is, you know, um, those inward things um, are living in this big. Environment with great vision. And I would say uh, that God used it uh, to form the inward life, the person. And so for me, I came to this, I have to start thinking why did I uh, enroll in such a vigorous and stringent. challenging journey and you know one of the factors that was going on uh, for me in joining uh, this uh, intense community was looking for family because of my background and losses and I imagine that uh, many of us did that and I think in our lives Uh, God is so uh, patient and gracious. So here I am, all these years later, looking back. And um, yes, I had all the enthusiasm, the vision, and the sense of calling. But at the same time, he was working within me. So to be married in such a close, intense community... I I see looking back it was tough it was very very hard and um I can see huge blessing you know I think of all the people we met you know and uh the intense relationships and um our links for example with India And I think today, what is happening in India today with COVID is so tragic. So, you know, um, this community with this great vision, we're operating in a very broken world and we are very broken. But I think the testimony looking back is how God uses those things. You know, um, I can see... I was a very slow learner, but um, I'm so thankful for what I experienced. But I'm also glad that today um, I've um, kind of changed a bit.
1: (laughs) Danny, here's a story that kind of feeds into what you're asking, I think, just to give one of how many stories there are. We arrived... um, one time in a port in the Arabian Gulf, and we had eight vehicles on the ship. So those vehicles had to be put ashore. And then we had to comply with whatever regulations the local government had for foreigners to drive those vehicles. And in this particular port, it was a rule that to be there as a foreigner, you had to have an international driver's license. But because we were only there for eight days, they gave us permission not to drive with, not to have to get everybody to have an international driver's license. Well, the chief engineer was responsible for the vehicles. So I announced this at breakfast that we could drive the vehicles. The chief engineer, who was fairly um, volatile, just went into a rage in front of everybody, and he said, you know, I'm the chief engineer, I'm in charge of the vehicles, I believe we should obey all of the rules, I'm not gonna allow those vehicles to be driven, this kind of thing. This was just before morning devotions. Everybody heard this. So, at the end of morning devotions, I went down to his cabin. He was sitting there writing out his letter of resignation, he was gonna resign. And I said to him, he's with the Lord now, I said to him, Dave, if you want to resign, that's okay, but not until our relationship is right. You cannot resign until our relationship is right. Well, he never resigned. Our relationship came into rightness and wholeness. And to, to indicate what it grew into, some years later, after we had left the ships, the ship was in northern Chile for a week of ministry to the crew. And they invited Hannah and me to come and minister to the crew. When we arrived at the airport, somebody from the ship was there to pick us up, and it was Dave. And so our relationship went from I'm going to resign to George and Hannah, I hold you in such dear affection and esteem, and we also held him in dear affection and esteem. So this is an example of how relationships can be healed and matured and beautified in a sense of intensive community. So it's not all worship hymns. But it is a deep, abiding transformation that takes place in people.
0: Such a good word. I know here in Phoenix, when we had our Apprenticeship to Jesus communities, one of the community leaders described it as, eventually the honeymoon phase ends, and you have to choose to love one another. Because you're going to see things that are going to be really hard to love. And so it's beautiful to hear that process working out, in this meta-narrative of missions and this passion to bring the gospel to all peoples, but to see God working in the particularities of each person's heart to form them in a deeper way in his likeness. And as we talk about the roots of Antioch, I think that process is really important for us to hold on to. But with that, I I wanted to ask another question, and you you spoke to being able to go to over a hundred different countries, and to meet with leaders and teams and pastors. And that's an experience that not many people can say they've had to get this scope of how the Bride of Christ is doing internationally. What were the things that were coming to the surface, and how did that feed into what eventually became Antioch Network?
1: Well, um, let's fast forward to a time when I was in my or approaching my mid-40s. And I found myself re-evaluating. And some of my um, close ministry friends and colleagues uh, found that difficult. And I remember myself saying to them, look, what I believed in my 20s, I now have 20 years of life experience. <laughs> so." Something has happened in those 20 years. I've been exposed to things that I wasn't exposed to in my 20s. And I found myself re-evaluating, and particularly in systemic ways that we were approaching missions. Because the challenges that we were facing in OM, in the ship ministry that I was leading, but also in OM generally, those challenges were also challenges that other ministries were also facing. This was not just OM. It wasn't just the ship ministry. Um, in, a bit, excuse me, in a very unique way, God brought Hannah and I together with the president of Wycliffe Bible Translators, a dear, dear, dear man. And we had a whole day with him, sharing with him where we were, and... Um, He said to us, Wycliffe is facing exactly the same things that you're talking about. So what were these systemic challenges? Well, one was funding. Typically, missions are underfunded. And being underfunded affects people very, very specifically. It affects particularly women. It affects particularly women with children. When a mother... feels that she can't get what she needs to care for her children that becomes traumatic and I know how often we in retrospect were asking our staff members our crew members to do without things we had families on board we had a school on board we had mothers and children on board and they had to do without because we didn't have money so the proper funding of missions secondly Uh, the pastoral care of missionaries. It is also systemic. Missionaries, we're asking them to live in very challenging situations. What about the visas? What about the money? What about health care? What about the education of the children? So the pastoral care of the missionaries. Another issue was a diversity of gifts. You know, if we have this idea that what is a missionary is somebody's going to Bible school or seminary, there ought to be a missionary. right there, we are limiting the people who are taking place in missions to a specific narrow um, stream of callings and giftings. On a ship, you have engineers. They've never been to, you know, if the ship, if the engines of the ship have a problem when you're at sea, you don't care whether the chief engineer has been to bible school that becomes irrelevant is he a good engineer and can he fix those engines and so multiply that by leaders by promotional people by communications people by people who are gifted to organize by people who are gifted to cook etc cetera, etc cetera. so the work of missions needs the laity And it needs laity that are not called to go to seminary. They're called to serve in harmony with how they are called and how they are gifted. So how do we structure missions to open the door to the whole spectrum of gifting within the body of Christ? Another issue was focus. If you hear missionaries, I'm called to go here, well, why are you called to go there? Well, it typically is, I have a friend that goes there, or my father went there when he was young, uh, rather than actually talking about what actually is the need in world evangelization, and how do we complete that need, and how do we focus on what we're doing? And so, these issues and other issues were systemic in our challenge in missions. And the work of the ships got to the point where the rest of OM, I mean, we were now one-third of the whole mission. And the rest of OM was asking us to please go into maintenance mode. (laughs) So George and Hannah really aren't called to maintenance mode. So we said, look, give us a break. We, We need to just take a break. And we needed to get new ideas, new thoughts, new thinking in the area of missions, in the area of uh, organization and in the area of communications. And so we came to uh, Southern California. First of all, we needed a rest. And secondly, to seek God and to pray and to be exposed to broader sections of the body of Christ and to pursue how do we respond to these challenges that all of us in missions are face systemically in missions. And it was out of that seedbed of reevaluation and rethinking that we more and more came to the local church. We missionaries have bought the problem, but the, it's not our problem. It's a problem that belongs to the body of Christ. And we missionaries need to take this problem that we have bought and come to the body of Christ, the local church, and say how do we together partner together to complete the task so it was out of that soil that antioch network was born
0: now i know we're nearing the end of this podcast but could you just in closing speak to that developing relationship with the local church and the role it played in giving birth to antioch
1: well um specifically, one of the next things that happened was that I was, we were asked, I was asked to teach. And so I was going, found myself inviting to church after church after church to speak about missions. We were very much involved with the perspectives course in the early days. We were putting on perspectives courses, teaching in perspectives courses. I did a four hour seminar on Saturday mornings with the four perspectives and that brought me into context every now and then with a church that was dreaming the dream that from our church we would send out a church planning team to an unreached people group and uh, once I was in Austin Texas teaching in a perspectives course and was sharing this vision and so people came to me Uh, at the break and said, you know, our church here in Austin wants to send a church planning team to Istanbul, Turkey. And my response in my heart was, what on earth does a church in Austin, Texas know about Istanbul, Turkey? But thankfully, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, I would like to meet with the people in your church that have this vision. And the next morning, I found myself in the room with the founder of that church, Dan Davis, who by the way is a businessman, with Dan Davis and one of the other leaders. And they say, George, what do you want to say to us? And I said, I don't want to say anything. I want to hear from you. Tell me about this vision of going to Istanbul. I discovered that Dan and his wife had spent months in Istanbul doing sociological research. They did indeed know what they were doing. Dan was an apostolically called and gifted leader. They wanted to put a team in Istanbul. And I said to Dan, look, every now and then I'm finding other churches that are also carrying this vision. Dan said, we need to get together. So March the 16th, six months later, 1987, I called Dan. I'm gonna be in Austin this day. Do You want me to call some of the other churches? So he said, yes. So I called churches. Look, if you want to get together with other churches and talk about a local church and a church praying team to an unreached people, meet me at Hope Chapel, Austin, Texas, March the 16th, 1987. Seven churches turned up. So we spent the whole day together. This church would tell what they are doing, we'd pray for them. Another church tell what they were doing, we'd pray for them. And that was, little did we know it, we didn't have the plan to do it, but that was the beginning of Antioch Network.
0: George and Hannah, it's such an honor to sit here and to hear the work that God was doing to lay these seeds and to germinate them into what this vision and this work and assignment has become, and to hear the unique components of the call to mission, the component of the formation of specifically you two personally to be able to carry this to its fruition and be the type of leaders that could give birth to the uniqueness that is Antioch Network, but then even the role of the local church in in some sense, even participating and proactively initiating it as well. And so that role with Dan Davis and saying, well, let's get together. What a gift to hear these particular roots of the missions, the local church, and that calling to bring these giftings together to navigate these issues and challenges that you specifically mentioned. And so it's an honor to, to be here with you guys today. I know we'll be tackling a few more of the roots and stories that give birth to Antioch Network that explain its uniqueness, which uh, it's difficult to explain Antioch, would you say? <laughs> I know throughout my history, I, I say, what is Antioch? And it's easier told in a story saying, well, let me tell you what God has been doing. And it gives it sense and character. And so I think these roots help give us context to articulate just the unique breadth and depth that is being called through um, this unique work and assignment that we are able to share and carry them together. So thank you both for your time, and um, we look forward to being able to do this again.